Chapter Sixteen of the Promised Land. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. The Promised Land by Mary Anton. Chapter Sixteen. Dover Street. What happened next was Dover Street, and what was Dover Street? Ask rather, what was it not? Dover Street was my fairest garden of girlhood, a gate of paradise, a window facing on a broad avenue of life. Dover Street was a prison, a school of discipline, a battlefield of sordid strife. The air in Dover Street was heavy with evil odors of degradation, but a breath from the uppermost heavens rippled through, whispering of infinite things. In Dover Street, the dragon poverty gripped me for a last fight, but I overthrew the hideous creature and sat on his neck as on a throne. In Dover Street, I was shackled with a hundred chains of disadvantage. But with one free hand, I planted little seeds right there in the mud of shame, that blossomed into the honeyed rose of widest freedom. In Dover Street, there was often no loaf on the table, but the hand of some noble friend was ever in mine. The night in Dover Street was rent with the cries of wrong, but the thunders of truth crashed through the pitiful clamor and died out in prophetic silences. Outwardly, Dover Street is a noisy thoroughfare cut through a South End slum. In every essential, the same as Wheeler Street. Turn down any street in the slums at random and call it by whatever name you please. You will observe there the same fashions of life, death, and endurance. Every one of those streets is a rubbish heap of damaged humanity, and it will take a powerful broom and an ocean of soapsuds to clean it out. Dover Street is intersected near its eastern end, where we lived, by Harrison Avenue. That street is to the south end what Salem Street is to the north end. It is the heart of the South End ghetto, for the greater part of its length, although its northern end belongs to the realm of Chinatown. Its multifarious business bursts through the narrow shop doors and overruns the basements, the sidewalk, the street itself, in pushcarts and open-air stands. Its multitudinous population bursts through the greasy tenement doors and floods the corridors, the doorsteps, the gutters, the side streets, pushing in and out among the pushcarts. All day long and half the night besides. Rarely as Harrison Avenue is caught asleep, even more rarely is it found clean. Nothing less than a fire or flood would cleanse this street. Even Passover cannot quite accomplish this feat, for although the tenements may be scrubbed to their remotest corners, on this one occasion the cleansing stops at the curbstone. A great deal of the filthy rubbish accumulated in a year is pitched into the street, often through the windows. And what the ashman on his daily round does not remove is left to be trampled to powder, in which form it steals back into the houses from which it was so lately removed. The city fathers provide soap and water for the slums, in the form of excellent schools, kindergartens, and branch libraries, and there they stop at the curbstone of the people's life. They cleanse and discipline the children's minds, but their bodies they pitch into the gutter. For there are no parks and almost no playgrounds in the Harrison Avenue district. In my day there were none, and such as there are have been wrenched from the city by public-spirited citizens who have no offices in City Hall. No wonder the Ashman is not more thorough; he learns from his masters. It is a pity to have it so in a queen of enlightened cities like Boston. If we of the twentieth century do not believe in baseball as much as philosophy, we have not learned the lesson of modern science, which teaches, among other things, that the body is the nursery of the soul, the instrument of our moral development, the secret chart of our devious progress from worm to man. 
The great achievement of recent science, of which we are so proud, has been the deciphering of the hieroglyphic of organic nature. To worship the facts and neglect the implications of the message of science is to applaud the drama without taking the moral to heart. And we certainly are not taking the moral to heart when we try to make a hero out of the boy by such foreign appliances as grammar and algebra, while utterly despising the fittest instrument for his uplifting, the boy's own body. We had no particular reason for coming to Dover Street. It might just have well been Apple Pie Alley, for my father had sold, with the goods, fixtures, and good will of the Wheeler Street store, all his hopes of ever making a living in the grocery trade. And I doubt if he got a silver dollar the more for them. We had to live somewhere, even if we were not making a living. So we came to Dover Street, where tenements were cheap, by which I mean that rent was low. The ultimate cost of life in those tenements, in terms of human happiness, is high enough. Our new home consisted of five small rooms up two flights of stairs, with the right of way through the dark corridors. In the parlor, the dingy paper hung in rags, and the plaster fell in chunks. One of the bedrooms was absolutely dark and airtight. The kitchen windows looked out on a dirty court, at the back of which was the rear tenement of the estate. To us belonged, along with the five rooms and the right of way aforesaid, a block of upper space the length of a pulley line across this court, and the width of an arc described by a windy Monday's washing in its remotest wanderings. The little front bedroom was assigned to me, with only one partner, my sister Dora. A mouse could not have led a cat much of a chase across this room. Still, we found space for a narrow bed, a crazy bureau, and a small table. From the window there was an unobstructed view of a lumberyard, beyond which frowned the blackened walls of a factory. The fence of the lumberyard was gay with theater posters and illustrated advertisements of tobacco, whiskey, and patent baby foods. When the window was open, there was a constant clang and whir of electric cars. Varied by the screech of machinery, the clatter of empty wagons, or the rumble of heavy trucks. There was nothing worse in all this than we had had before since our exile from Crescent Beach. But I did not take the same delight in the propiniquity of electric cars and arc lights that I had till now. I suppose the tenement began to pale on me. It must not be supposed that I enjoyed any degree of privacy, because I had half a room to myself. We were six in the five rooms. We were bound to be always in each other's way. And as it was within our flat, so it was in the house as a whole. All doors, beginning with the street door, stood open most of the time. Or if they were closed, the tenants did not wear out their knuckles knocking for admittance. I could stand at any time in the unswept entrance hall and tell, from an analysis of the medley of sounds and smells that issued from doors ajar, what was going on in the several flats from below up. That guttural, scolding voice, unremittent as the hissing of a steam pipe, is Mrs. Renoski. I make a guess that she is chastising the infant Isaac for taking a second lump of sugar in his tea. Spam, bam, yes, and she is rubbing in her objections with the flat of her hand. That blubbering and moaning, accompanying an elephantine tread, is fat Mrs. Casey, second floor, home drunk from an afternoon out, in fear of the vengeance of Mr. Casey. To propitiate whom she is burning a pan of bacon, as the choking fumes and outrageous sizzling testify. I hear a feeble whining, interrupted by long silences. It is that scabby baby on the third floor, fallen out of bed again, with nobody home to pick him up. To escape these various horrors, I ascend to the roof, where bacon and babies and child beating are not. 
but there I find two figures in calico wrappers, with bare red arms akimbo, a basket of wet clothes in front of each, and only one empty clothesline between them. I do not want to be dragged in as a witness in case of assault and battery, so I descend to the street again, grateful to note, as I pass, that the third-floor baby is still. In front of the door I squeeze through a group of children. They are going to play tag, and are counting to see who should be it. My mother and your mother went out to hang clothes. My mother gave your another a punch in the nose. If the children's couplet does not give a vivid picture of the life, manners, and customs of Dover Street, no description of mine can ever do so. Frida was married before we came to Dover Street, and went to live in East Boston. This left me the eldest of the children at home. Whether on this account, or because I was outgrowing my childish carelessness, or because I began to believe, on the cumulative evidence of the Crescent Beach, Chelsea, and Wheeler Street adventures, that America, after all, was not going to provide for my father's family. Whether for any or all of these reasons, I began at this time to take bread-and-butter matters more to heart, and to ponder ways and means of getting rich. My father saw employment wherever work was going on. His health was poor, he aged very fast. Nevertheless, he offered himself for every kind of labor, he offered himself for a boy's wages. Here he was found too weak, here too old, here his imperfect English was in the way, here his Jewish appearance. He had a few short terms of work at this or that. I do not know the name of the form of drudgery that my father did not practice. But all told, he did not earn enough to pay the rent in full and buy a bone for the soup. The only steady source of income, for I do not know what years, was my brother's earnings from his newspapers. Surely this was the time for me to take my sister's place in the workshop. I had had every fair chance until now. School, my time to myself, liberty to run and play and make friends. I had graduated from grammar school. I was of legal age to go to work. What was I doing, sitting at home and dreaming? I was minding my business, of course. With all my might I was minding my business. As I understood it, my business was to go to school, to learn everything there was to know to write poetry, become famous, and make the family rich. Surely it was not shirking to lay out such a program for myself. I had boundless faith in my future. I was certainly going to be a great poet. I was certainly going to take care of the family. Thus mused I, in my arrogance. And my family? They were as bad as I. My father had not lost a whit of his ambition for me. Since graduation day, and the school committee man's speech, and half a column about me in the paper— his ambition had soared even higher. He was going to keep me at school till I was prepared for college. By that time he was sure I would more than take care of myself. It never for a moment entered his head to doubt the wisdom or justice of this course. And my mother was just as loyal to my cause, and my brother, and my sister. It is no wonder if I got along rapidly. I was helped, encouraged, and upheld by everyone. Even the baby cheered me on. When I asked her whether she believed in higher education, she answered without a moment's hesitation, Dekka dekka da! Against her I remember only that one day, when I read her a verse out of a most pathetic piece I was composing. She laughed right out, a most disrespectful laugh, for which I revenged myself by washing her face at the faucet, and rubbing it red on the roller towel. It was just like me, when it was debated whether I would be best fitted for college at the high or the Latin school, to go in person to Mr. Tetlow, who was principal of both schools, and so get the most expert opinion on the subject. I never send a messenger, you may remember, where I can go myself. 
It was vacation time, and I had to find Mr. Tetlow at his home. Away out to the wilds of Roxbury, I found my way, perhaps half an hour's ride on the electric car from Dover Street. I grew an inch taller and broader between the corner of Cedar Street and Mr. Tetlow's house. Such was the charm of the clean, green suburb on a cramped waif from the slums. My faded calico dress, my rusty straw sailor hat, the color of my skin and all bespoke the waif. But never a bit daunted was I. I went up the steps to the porch, rang the bell, and asked for the great man with as much assurance as if I were a daily visitor on Cedar Street. I calmly awaited the appearance of Mr. Tetlow in the reception room, and stated my errand without trepidation. And why not? I was a solemn little person for the moment, earnestly seeking advice on a matter of great importance. That is what Mr. Tetlow saw, to judge by the gravity with which he discussed my business with me, and the courtesy with which he showed me to the door. He saw, too, I fancy, that I was not the least bit conscious of my shabby dress, and I am sure he did not smile at my appearance, even when my back was turned. A new life began for me when I entered the Latin school in September. Until then, I had gone to school with my equals, and as a matter of course. Now it was distinctly a feat for me to keep in school, and my schoolmates were socially so far superior to me that my poverty became conspicuous. The pupils of the Latin school, from the nature of the institution, are an aristocratic set. They come from refined homes, dress well, and spend the recess hour talking about parties, bows, and the matinee. As students, they are either very quick or very hard-working, for the course of study, in the lingo of the school world, is considered stiff. The girl with half her brain asleep, or with too many bows, drops out by the end of the first year, or a one and only bow may be the fatal element. At the end of the course, the weeding process has reduced the once numerous tribe of academic candidates to a cozy little family. By all these tokens, I should have had serious business on my hands as a pupil in the Latin school, but I did not find it hard. To make myself letter-perfect in my lessons required long hours of study, but that was my delight. To make myself at home in an alien world was also within my talents. I had been practicing it day and night for the past four years. To remain unconscious of my shabby and ill-fitting clothes when the rustle of silk petticoats in the schoolroom protested against them was a matter still within my moral reach. Half a dress a year had been my allowance for many seasons, even less, for as I did not grow much I could wear my dresses as long as they lasted. And I had stood before editors, and exchanged polite calls with school-teachers, untroubled by the detestable colors and archaic designs of my garments. To stand up and recite Latin declensions without trembling from hunger was something more of a feat, because I sometimes went to school with little or no breakfast. But even that required no special heroism. At most, it was a matter of self-control. I had the advantage of a poor appetite, too. I really did not need much breakfast. Or, if I was hungry, it would hardly show. I coughed so much that my unsteadiness was self-explained. Everything helped, you see. My schoolmates helped. Aristocrats, though they were, they did not hold themselves aloof from me. Some of the girls who came to school in carriages were especially cordial. They rated me by my scholarship, and not by my father's occupation. They teased and admired me by turns for learning the footnotes in the Latin grammar by heart. They never reproached me for my ignorance of the latest comic opera. And it was more than good breeding that made them seem unaware of the incongruity of my presence. It was a generous appreciation of what it meant for a girl from the slums to be in the Latin school, on the way to college. If our intimacy ended on the steps of the schoolhouse, 
It was more my fault than theirs. Most of the girls were democratic enough to have invited me to their homes. Although to some, of course, I was impossible. But I had no time for visiting. Schoolwork and reading and family affairs occupied all the daytime, and much of the nighttime. I did not go with any of the girls, in the schoolgirl sense of the phrase. I admired some of them, either for good looks or beautiful manners, or more subtle attributes, but always at a distance. I discovered something inimitable in the way the Back Bay girls carried themselves, and I should have been the first to perceive the incongruity of Commonwealth Avenue entwining arms with Dover Street. Some day, perhaps, when I should be famous and rich, but not just then. So my companions and I parted on the steps of the schoolhouse, in mutual respect, they guiltless of snobbiness, I innocent of envy. It was a graciously American relation, and I am happy to this day to recall it. The one exception to this rule of friendly distance was my chum, Florence Connolly. But I should hardly have said chum. Florence and I occupied adjacent seats for three years. But we did not walk arm in arm, nor call each other nicknames, nor share our lunch, nor correspond in vacation time. Florence was quiet as a mouse, and I was reserved as an oyster. And perhaps we two had no more in common fundamentally than those two creatures in their natural state. Still, as we were both very studious, and never strayed far from our desks at recess, we practiced a sort of intimacy of propiniquity. Although Florence was of my social order, her father presiding over a cheap lunchroom, I did not on that account feel especially drawn to her. I spent more time studying Florence than loving her, I suppose. And yet I ought to have loved her. She was such a good girl. Always perfect in her lessons. She was so modest that she recited in a noticeable tremor, and had to be told frequently to raise her voice. Florence wore her light brown hair brushed flatly back and braided in a single plait, at a time when pompadours were six inches high and braids hung in pairs. Florence had a pocket in her dress for her handkerchief, in a day when pockets were repugnant to fashion. All these things ought to have made me feel the kinship of humble circumstances, the comradeship of intellectual earnestness, but they did not. The truth is that my relation to persons and things depended neither on social distinctions nor on intellectual or moral affinities. My attitude at this time was determined by my consciousness of the unique elements in my character and history. It seemed to me that I had been pursuing a single adventure since the beginning of the world. Through highways and byways, underground, overground, by land, by sea, ever the same star had guided me, I thought, ever the same purpose had divided my affairs from other men's. What that purpose was, were the fixed horizon beyond which my star would not recede, was an absorbing mystery to me. But the current moment never puzzled me. What I chose instinctively to do, I knew to be right and in accordance with my destiny. I never hesitated over great things, but answered promptly to the call of my genius. So what was it to me whether my neighbor spurned or embraced me, if my way was no man's way? Nor should anyone ever reject me whom I chose to be my friend. "'because I would make sure of a kindred spirit "'by the coincidence of our guiding stars. "'When, where, in the harem-scarum life of Dover Street "'was there time or place for such self-communing? "'In the night, when everybody slept, "'on a solitary walk, as far from home as I dared to go. "'I was not unhappy on Dover Street, quite the contrary. "'Everything of consequence was well with me. "'Poverty was a superficial, temporary matter. "'It vanished at the touch of money.' Money in America was plentiful. It was only a matter of getting some of it, and I was on my way to the mint. 
If Dover Street was not a pleasant place to abide in, it was only a wayside house. And I was really happy, actively happy, in the exercise of my mind in Latin, mathematics, history, and the rest, the things that suffice a studious girl in the middle teens. Still, I had moments of depression, when my whole being protested against the life of the slum. I resented the familiarity of my vulgar neighbors. I felt myself defiled by the indecencies I was compelled to witness. Then it was I took to running away from home. I went out in the twilight and walked for hours, my blind feet leading me. I did not care where I went. If I lost my way, so much the better. I never wanted to see Dover Street again. But behold, as I left the crowds behind, and the broader avenues were spanned by the open sky, my grievances melted away, and I fell to dreaming of things that neither hurt nor pleased. A fringe of trees against the sunset became suddenly the symbol of the whole world, and I stood and gazed and asked questions of it. The sunset faded, the trees withdrew, the wind went by, but dropped no hint in my ear. The evening star leaped out between the clouds and sealed the secret with a seal of splendor. A favorite resort of mine after dark was the South Boston Bridge, across South Bay and the old Colony Railroad. This was so near home that I could go there at any time when the confusion in the house drove me out, or I felt the need of fresh air. I liked to stand leaning on the bridge railing and look down on the dim tangle of railroad tracks below. I could barely see them branching out, elbowing, winding, and sliding out into the night in pairs. I was fascinated by the dotted lights, the significant red and green of signal lamps. These simple things stood for a complexity that it made me dizzy to think of. Then the blackness below me was split by the fiery eye of a monster engine. His breath enveloped me in blinding clouds. His long body shot by, rattling a hundred claws of steel. And he was gone, with an imperative shriek that shook me where I stood. So would I be, swift on my rightful business, picking out my proper track from the million that cross it, pausing for no obstacles, sure of my goal. After my watches on the bridge, I often stayed up to write or study. It is late before Dover Street begins to go to bed. It is past midnight before I feel that I am alone. Seated in my stiff little chair before my narrow table, I gather in the night sounds through the open window, curious to assort and define them. As, little by little, the city settles down to sleep, the volume of sound diminishes, and the qualities of particular sounds stand out. The electric car lurches by with silent gong, taking the empty track by leaps, humming to itself in the invisible distance. A benighted team swings restlessly around the corner, sharp under my rattling window panes. The staccato pelting of hoofs on the cobblestones changed suddenly to an even pounding on the bridge. A few pedestrians hurry by, their heavy boots all out of step. The distant thoroughfares have long ago ceased their murmur, and I know that a million lamps shine idly in the idle streets. My sister sleeps quietly in the little bed. The rhythmic dripping of a faucet is audible through the flat. It is so still that I can hear the paper crackling on the wall. Silence upon silence is added to the night. Only the kitchen clock is the voice of my brooding thoughts. Ticking, ticking, ticking. Suddenly the distant whistle of a locomotive breaks the stillness with a long-drawn wail. Like a threatened trouble, the sound comes nearer, piercingly near. Then it dies out in a mangled silence, complaining to the last. The sleepers stir in their beds. Somebody sighs, and the burden of all his trouble falls upon my heart. A homeless cat cries in the alley, in the voice of a human child. 
and the ticking of the kitchen clock is the voice of my troubled thoughts. Many things are revealed to me as I sit and watch the world asleep, but the silence asks me many questions that I cannot answer, and I am glad when the tide of sound begins to return, by little and little, and I welcome the clatter of tin cans that announces the milkman. I cannot see him in the dusk, but I know his wholesome face has no problem in it. It is one flight up to the roof. It is a leap of the soul to the sunrise. The morning mist rests lightly on chimneys and roofs and walls, wreaths the lampposts, and floats in gauzy streamers down the streets. Distant buildings are massed like palace walls, with turrets and spires lost in the rosy clouds. I love my beautiful city spreading all about me. I love the world. I love my place in the world. End of chapter 16